Uh, very warm welcome to you all. Uh, this is a public lecture at the LSE. We are here very uh, happy to have Frank Wilczek, um, who will present his book, um, Beautiful Question, Finding Nature's Deep Design. The event is hosted by the LSE, by the Department of Mathematics, um, of which I'm here the host. Uh, my name is Bernhard von Stengel. I'm here a professor of mathematics. And mathematics is the closest thing to physics that LSE has to offer, so that's why <laughs> we are uh, doing this talk here. And um, yeah, um, just to uh, a little bit about the proceedings, the talk will last uh, approximately a little less than one hour, and you will have an opportunity to ask questions. And then there's also a book stand out there, which if you have bought a book, if you haven't done already, you <laughs> should do right after the lecture and come up, and then you can get a signature and autographed copy by, because uh, Frank is kind enough to sit here and sign the books that you have bought. So that will be on stage when you come um, after the lecture and after we have finished our discussion. And now a little bit on, on our, our guest here. Uh, Frank Wilczek is a professor of physics at MIT, and he had studied mathematics in Chicago and uh, physics in the PhD at Princeton, where it, um, as a graduate student, as far as I understood, he uh, discovered asymptotic freedom. Maybe he will talk, tell us something about it, but I, as far as I understood it, it's about um, the strong force inside the atoms that keeps the quarks together. I mean, something like that. And, <laughs> and um, so I might probably... Anyhow, this was good it. enough um, to be awarded in 2004 uh, the Nobel Prize in Physics, which is obviously the, the, one of the highest, uh, the highest distinctions you could aspire to. And um, this is now a popular book uh, that uh, Frank has written on on all aspects of physics, in particular the beauty that is behind these ideas. So we're very um, happy to have you here, and I uh, uh, welcome you to, to start your talk here. Let me try to succeed, hopefully, in moving the... And this is it. Right. So thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. I, I've always dreamed that, uh, being, of being at the London School of Economics. Uh, I was kind of surprised to be invited, and I'm not sure I'm going to help you make any money tonight, but maybe I'll help myself make some money, we'll see. <laughs> anyway, the, the topic tonight is uh, the major themes that are discussed at great depth, I hope, and with insight in the book, A Beautiful Question. The book revolves around this question, which will be our concern tonight. Does the world embody beautiful ideas? It seems like a very peculiar question because it talks about two very distinct realms, the realm of beauty and ideas on the one hand and the world on the other, meaning the physical world. What does it mean for something to embody a, an idea? Well, embodying beautiful ideas is what artists try to do. They take ideas and turn them into physical artifacts. So another way of phrasing the question is, is it fruitful, useful, informative to 
consider the world as a work of art, and if it is, is it a good one? So one of the main uh, themes that emerges from deep study of physics, as we'll walk through, and certainly also in uh, certain kinds of art, uh, a very important concept, is the concept of symmetry. Now, I'm going to start by talking about symmetry of equations, which may sound forbidding, but actually talking about symmetry of equations, as you'll see, is probably the very simplest place to start and turns out to be uh, a very useful thing to build on. So we say an equation is symmetric if we can change the quantities that appear in it without changing its content. What does this have to do with symmetry? Usually you think of symmetry as being some kind of balance, some kind of uh, harmony. But think about a circle. That's a very symmetric object. What makes it symmetric? Well, you can turn it around its center by any angle, and although every point on it moves, the circle as a whole doesn't. So there's a change without change. If you have a triangle, and it's a lopsided triangle, uh, that won't be the case. No matter how much you rotate, until you rotate by 360 degrees, uh, it won't be the same thing. But for a special triangle, for an equilateral triangle, if you rotate through 120 degrees, you get back to the same thing. So that has less symmetry than a circle, but still has significant symmetry. So these are examples of how the concept of change without change captures some of the intuitive idea of what symmetry is. The definition, however, of change without change has special virtues. It's precise. It has something to do with the common usage, but refines it similarly to how the scientific use of concepts like force or energy or chaos has something in common with their ordinary use, but refines it. And it's also uh, turning that this, this particular choice of definition turns out to be very flexible and to prove wonderfully fruitful in mathematics and physics. So enough talk, let's actually write an equation. I'll write two equations in this talk. Both appear on this slide. Here's the first one, x equals y. That's a nice balanced equation. It has a kind of simplicity to it. Is it symmetric in a, an obvious sense? Well, yes, it is. If you, what is the change without change that you can perform on this equation? Well, you can change x into y and y into x, and this, then this equation, x equals y, turns into a different equation, y equals x. But that equation means exactly the same thing. So its content hasn't changed, although its appearance has. If you take a lopsided equation, like this one, it really shouldn't be symmetric, because it's lopsided, and sure enough, it isn't. If you change x into y, uh, the equation x equals y plus 2 turns into the equation y equals x plus 2, which doesn't mean the same thing at all. If we assume that our... That's a very baby example, of course. The important examples for physics 
and mathematics are more complex, but the lesson is general. If we assume that our equations that govern physical processes, or the the laws of physics, if you like, expressed as equations, uh, will allow a wide variety of transformations without changing their content, Uh, we get led to very specific equations, just as we get led to very specific shapes, or in our baby example, to a particularly balanced equation. This concept of symmetry of equations is the essence of our deepest understanding of nature. And I'll come back to that and build on it as we go along. But as a first example of how symmetry in this, con- in this uh, de- uh, concept, that is, change without change, can help us understand the physical world, I'd like to give an important example that's easy to understand and visual. Uh, that is the example of relativity. This example really goes back to Galileo. Galileo did a thought experiment, which was appropriate to the time when people sailed on ships, and everybody knew what it was like to sail on a ship, especially in Venice, where he worked. So if you're inside a sealed cabin in a ship, and the ship is sailing smoothly, so it's not in a storm, and it's not uh, just pulling out of port, but smoothly moving along at a constant Uh, rate, you can't tell that you're moving. Things still fall straight down. Galileo gives charming examples, like if you've taken fish along, they'll swim happily in all directions. Uh, So that's a change you can make, moving at a constant velocity without changing the physical behavior of your system. That has very profound physical consequences. My favorite one of all of them is the one I'll show you now. It allows us, symmetry often allows us to understand superficially different things as aspects of a single reality. In particular, Newton, in pioneering work in the 17th century, discovered that light, white light, ordinary white light from the sun, say, could be analyzed into simpler pieces simply by putting it through a prism. But then if you take these beams and make them, uh, say, sub-beams, like this red beam, and pass it through another prism, it stays red. And not only does it stay red if you put it through a prism, but also if you reflect it, if you put it through lenses, if you uh, subject it to all kinds of indignities, it stays red. And similarly for the other spectral colors. So white is not a pure color. There are sort of purer versions, uh, different colors that seem to have independent existence. It's as if you had an infinite number of different elements, each separate from the other as primary ingredients of the reality of light. And that's where things stood for a couple of centuries, two and a half. (laughs) Until, with the development of our understanding of light as electromagnetic waves, 
and especially Einstein's refinement of relativity to deal with light, uh, it was realized that if you move very rapidly, very rapidly, <laughs> at a substantial fraction of the speed of light, one color turns into another. If you have a beam of red coming towards you and you're approaching it, it doesn't look red. It looks more blue. If you're looking at blue, you have a red shift. If you're moving away from... And astronomers make use of this to tell how fast things are moving away. Here's a precise picture of what a, an electromagnetic wave looks, looks like. On, if you look at it coming at you on this side or going away from you on this side, it's one electromagnetic beam emanating from here. Uh, but you can see it can represent different colors. This is what you'd see if the source was moving at seven-tenths the speed of light. If you think about it, and now it's still valid in modern physics and in the theory of relativity, that moving at constant velocity is a symmetry, so the laws of physics remain the same, yet it changes one color into another, it means that what Newton thought were independent primary ingredients of reality are actually just one thing, seen, so to speak, from different perspectives, different perfectly valid perspectives that all support the same laws of physics, but uh, different appearances of things. And so instead of, an, of light being an... an uh, Light being something that has an infinite number of different possibilities, different pure spectral colors, we learn that those possibilities are basically one reality transformed by symmetries, transformed by transformations that are symmetries. So the existence of one color and the principle of relativity implies the existence of all the others, and you can read off the properties of light of any color in principle from knowing the properties of one color. <laughs> now, there's a much older example of powerful use of symmetry in understanding the world that arose at the dawn of the Renaissance. This, when people uh, tried to make realistic depictions of what you actually see uh, on two-dimensional canvases. So, if you look far away uh, and have a bird's-eye view of long, parallel train tracks, they'll never meet. They go off for a long way. But if you come down to the ground and look, you'll see that they actually do seem to meet on the horizon at a so-called point at infinity. And every one of these parallel lines seems to meet at the same point. If you had other train tracks going in different directions, they would also, and where they were parallel, they would also meet in a point, but a different point. So these are called points of in, at infinity, or vanishing points, they are points on the horizon where parallel lines meet. That's an example of 
very different representations that have to be all valid from the point of view of an artist because they're just the same thing seen from other perspectives. And this gives rise to a very interesting intellectual as well as artistic question, an intellectual question that's central to this problem of art, which is what transformations can one make on an image such that the transformed version still represents the same underlying reality, just seen from a different vantage point, a different perspective. That question leads to the subject known as perspective in art and as projective geometry in mathematics. It's a study in symmetry, if you think about it, because it's asking... or telling us, if you like, that uh, the image, we can have many transformations of an image while representing the same object. So we can change the image without change to the underlying object. Or, conversely, another perspective on it, if you like, is that if you consider the totality of representations of an object, seen from all vantage points, then there are many transformations you can make on the object. You can rotate it. You can move it. And although from any one vantage point, when you do that, the object will look different, if you consider the totality of all representations, that doesn't change. Just as when you had a circle and rotated, every point moves, but the, whole, the circle as a whole doesn't move. People find this kind of symmetry, the study of perspective and and, uh, the accurate representation of the world from different viewpoints, uh, both beautiful and empowering. It allows you to put different visual elements together, as you'll see. And uh, it gives us uh, very beautiful geometric constructions. Uh, Unfortunately... The top of this, okay, you have to imagine the top of this thing has been chopped off, but it should look like that with a black horizon up there. Not much has been chopped off, but just a little bit. So this is the, a representation of the, uh, the solution of the problem of if I have a square seen from some other vantage point, we know that it won't look square, but suppose I have a whole checkerboard or a whole... Uh, uh, city, city uh, uh, central square <laughs> uh, uh, which is tiled by squares how do I represent all the other squares, all the other equal squares, how do they actually look from the vantage point when this square looks like that if we're given the original square and the horizon then there's a very pretty construction that allows us to get all the other squares accurately So we start with this side of a square and this side, and they meet at a point at infinity out on the horizon here. This side and the other opposite side meet at a point at infinity here. And then the key observation is that there's another natural set of parallel lines, the diagonals to the squares. And we have a red one here in our original square. Uh, But we also have meeting at the same point at infinity, 
diagonals of the neighboring squares. We don't know what those neighboring squares are yet, but we know that their diagonals have to meet this red one at its point at infinity, and so that enables us to re return from the point at infinity and get the diagonals to the neighboring squares. Once we know the diagonals to the negative squares, we see their intersections with this side of the original square continued, so we get vertices of the neighboring squares, and then we can take that vertex and take its point in the point of infinity for the side parallel to this square. You'll get the idea. It's a mechanical process of great logic that enables you to do something absolutely marvelous, to start with a square, a square as it appears, and a horizon, and create a square-tiled floor, an accurate representation of what a square-tiled floor actually looks like. I love doing... I, I've done this many times. I kind of got addicted to it last summer. <laughs> and it's, it's... Well, it's a beautiful act of creation. Very simple, but for people who aren't terribly talented in art. <laughs> a revelation. <laughs> For artists, it was extremely empowering. It was begun, this, this kind of discovery was due to Brunelleschi at the beginning of the Renaissance. Very quickly, it became extremely popular. And in a few years, uh, masterpieces like this were created. This is Perugino's uh, giving of the keys to St. Peter. And you see the, ascent, the square of a European city uh, with now accurately represented, just like the grid I showed you. And also there are other different other parallel lines going off in different directions for the buildings. He obviously enjoyed perspective and played with it. And uh, also the people who are populating this square obviously also are having a very good time. So there's a kind of exuberance to it. When you have this stable base of geometry, you can build on it. So symmetry is a platform for exuberant creation. Now I'd like to take this a big step further. Perspective gone wild. So perspective showed us that we could represent the same thing in very different appearances on, by looking at it from different places. And that was a kind of symmetry. Okay, you could change the object and the totality of representations don't change. A vastly expanded concept of transformation is the essence of anamorphic art, a more modern form of exuberant art. Here's a lovely example of anamorphic art. Uh, a column like this doesn't look like that from any perspective. You can't get it to look like that just by going to a different place. It's obviously kind of crazily distorted. But you can get it if you allow a kind of distorted medium. Here it's just a, uh, a cylindrical mirror. So if you allow the existence of media, you can allow a much wider class of transformations. You can represent the same thing in having many, many different 
a, a vast expansion of the uh, forms that represent the same underlying object. This thought, spelled out in equations, uh, is what led Einstein to the general theory of relativity. In that case, he wanted to have different representations of how you apply coordinates to describe space and time and have all these different ways of describing it uh, give the same physical consequences. And with one additional twist, which I'm about to describe, it gives us our theories of the other fundamental forces as well. So theory construction using local symmetry parallels the process of constructing anamorphic art. The artist kindly supplied this uh, description of his procedure, especially for the book. Uh, so what you have to do is specify the substance, specify how you want to be able to let it look, so the kinds of transformations you want to allow, and then design the enabling mirror, the enabling materials that allow these transformations to occur uh, as a result of physical processes. Okay, I've said all this already, except the last one. In general relativity, the medium is called the metric fluid. You introduce that as a kind of enabling material that distorts the description of space and time. And once you have that, you can accommodate distorted views uh, successfully. So we want to demand that the, uh, this, this transformations, which are, allow vast changes in the look of things, not to change the laws that describe them. We want to have change without change. If we're going to do that, we need very, very special equations, and that's the equations that nature turns out to use. Okay, I said I needed one more idea to deal with the other interactions, the other fundamental forces of nature, so now I'd like to show you that idea. It has considerable independent interest. It's a, new, it's a way of thinking about color, something that's very familiar to all of us uh, in, in a particularly informative and, I think, a new way. So to understand the other, the non-gravitational forces, we need to introduce a new idea, property spaces. So, uh, for instance in describing the behavior of electric, electromagnetism, we need an extra property besides the mass of particles, their energy and momentum, which appears in general relativity, namely electric charge. So that's a property. And if we want to describe the distribution of electric charge in space, we have at every point in space and time to just to specify a number, which is the density of electric charge at that point in space and time. All sounds very abstract, perhaps, and maybe unfamiliar, but it's actually what we meet in everyday life when we see the world in color. Let me elaborate on that. So this is a great hero 
of uh, physicists. Also, I noticed on the outside, he's a hero of King's College, James Clerk Maxwell. Uh, you notice the twinkle in his eye and the kind of grin. He's a happy young man. He's got a toy to play with. What is that strange toy? Well, this toy is actually a powerful scientific instrument that Maxwell used to elucidate our perception of color. Here's how it works. You have two annular bands that you can uh, apply paper strips to, and you can apply paper strips of different colors, and then you can twirl it around to get the colors to mix perceptually and see whether there are different combinations of colors that, uh, when you twirl them around, look the same. What Maxwell discovered in a long series of experiments, really going throughout his whole career, many of them done with the assistance of his wife, uh, so this was literally a labor of love, uh, he found, they found, I should say, that uh, by using three colors in the inner band, say red, green, and blue, I didn't show blue here, uh, you could match any color, any perceived color, on the outside. Two doesn't work. Four is not necessary. Three is the magic number that allows you to match any color on the outside using colors on the inside. This is the basis of modern computer displays, color photography, uh, television, color television. Uh, you have colored sources of three basic types, and by mixing them with different intensities, you can get any other color. The annular band I showed you before was getting green and red to match yellow. That's here. But you can also get white or any other color by having them in different, having the three basic colors, which, by the way, are pretty arbitrary, too. You can pick almost any three, uh, <clears throat> matching in different ratios. <clears throat> so, the world of perceptual color maps on to a three-dimensional cube. You need to know the brightness of blue, the brightness of green, and the brightness of red. When they're all totally unbright, you have black. When they're all totally white, you have, uh, bright, you have white. But in between, you have all other possible colors that are available to human perception uh, represented uniquely, once and once only, in this cube. So there's a complete mapping of a perceptual color space into a color cube. Let me appear to digress for a moment, but we'll come right back to this. There's no, there's no denying the mystical appeal of the concept of extra dimensions. Spiritualists and mentalists have talked about this kind of thing for uh, a long time, and still do. And you can have kind of inspiring, mystical-looking pictures like this of what extra dimensions might look like on top of the physical world. 
wouldn't it be marvelous, wouldn't it be mind-boggling if we could actually experience these things? Well, we can, and we do. There's our color cube. And if you look at a computer screen, at every point in the screen, you see some mixture of the three colors. In other words, at every point in the screen, you're somewhere in a three-dimensional color cube. And for different points in the screen, you can be in different places. This is extra dimensions. And we can even prove it in a formula. Not an equation, but a formula. I said only two equations. Uh, but here, if, we, if, if you're a computer, or if you're programming a computer, and you want to know what you're supposed to do, what you have to know is at every point, at every time t, in every position, x and y, on the computer screen, how much red, how much green, and how much blue to output. So you need these six numbers. In this list of six numbers, the R, G, and B look very much the same as T, X, and Y. So really, it's, a six, it's naturally represented as a six-dimensional space, or two space, one time, and three colors, making a six-dimensional reality. So we have a three-dimensional property space, for the space of perceptive, perceptive colors on top of space-time. So the answer to the question, what do extra dimensions look like, is that you're looking at them. Okay, we saw that uh, perspective going wild in space and time leads to the general theory of relativity. The idea that underlies the other three uh, uh, fundamental primary forces of nature that we've discovered in our description of the world is closely related, but has an extra twist. As I mentioned, it builds in the extra twist is this idea of property spaces and perspective not only going wild, but also getting colorful. So we go from anamorphia to anachromia. This is an, a new and unknown branch of art. I'm going to show you some of the first anachromic images momentarily. So spaces of color charges, and they're called color by some act of genius or uncanny intuition or just luck. Or, uh, they happen to be called color charges. Uh, they're the essence of our core theories of the electromagnetic weak and strong forces. As I already mentioned, the density of electric charge is described by one number, so that makes a space of one dimension on top of space-time. The weak and strong color spaces are the same sort of thing, not with electric charge, but with new charges called weak charges and strong charges. Uh, for There are two weak charges, also called colors, also called weak, and three strong charges, also called strong colors. <laughs> so, if you're a photon, you see a monochrome world, because you only care about charged, electric charge density. If you're one of the force carriers of the weak interactions, and there are three of them, uh, 
you care about two different weak color charges. So you see a two-color two version of the world, like a colorblind person. Uh, this one's missing blue. I just took this one's obviously all green. This one is green and red. And then uh, the strong interactions are as perceptive as we are. <laughs> Those guys care about three different color charges. And Equations that allow anachromic, or as it's used, the jargon is local rotations in color spaces, are the basis of our core theories of electromagnetic weak and strong forces. If we're going to allow, as I mentioned, large classes of transformations to be symmetries, then we are led to very special equations in in, in, in uh, the theory of space-time distortions, that led to the general theory of relativity. If we talk about distortions in the internal space or the, the property spaces, then we're led to the theories of the other forces. So let me show you what these transformations look like. So here is a candy stall in Barcelona. This is the original image, pretty colorful. If you make a transformation of colors, so change the property space so that red changes into blue and uh, green changes into red and red turns into... Oh, red turns into blue. I already said that. Green. And uh, blue turns into green. So you permute the three different colors. Then you get this strange-looking image but it's a, it has exactly the same information content as the original image, just scrambled. And if you do this kind of thing in property spaces, you want your equations to stay the same, to have the same content. Although they'll look very different, they'll have the same content. And when you do it, when you go wild, what you do to make a bigger class of transformations and get even more specific equations is allow the movement in color spaces to be different at different points in space or in the theory of physics in different points of space and time. Those are, and then you get bizarre-looking pictures like this. If you do a relatively mild rotation, that changes from place to place in color space. If you make a wild transformation, you get bizarre, even more bizarre things like this. Actually, some of my artist friends at Oxford told me that uh, Matisse did this sort of thing. So it's not an altogether new idea, but... Well, that's good. That shows that art and science are not so distinct. Right? <clears throat> so, as in general relativity, we find that if we want to enable those sorts of distorted representations uh, in our description to not change the equations, not to change the content of the equations, although they look quite different, uh, we must introduce image-changing media with very specific properties. For electromagnetism, we get the electromagnetic fluid as the enabling material, and we find, amazingly, that the required symmetric equations are Maxwell's equations. 
and we can state the yoga of QED, the theory we get that, quantum electrodynamics, the theory we get that way uh, in this way. The photon fluid required by symmetry tells electric charge how to flow, and electric charge tells the photon fluid how to flow. For more dimen- higher dimensional property spaces in the weak and strong interaction, we get more complex fluids governed by something called the Yang-Mills equations, which are generalizations of the, Yang- of the Maxwell equations. They're like the electromagnetic fluid on steroids, so they still have kind of things that look like electric and magnetic fields, but in the case of the weak interactions, there are three different ones, and in the case of the Strong interactions, there are eight different ones. We say there are eight different color gluons. And when you apply quantum mechanics to this fluid, you find that there are eight different kinds of particles that uh, can be excited out of this fluid instead of just one paltry photon in electromagnetism. (laughs) And those particles can actually be seen in accelerators. (laughs) So I told you the yoga of the Uh, quantum electrodynamics, the yoga of the weak force is pretty much the same thing. The weak fluid tells weak charge how to flow, and weak charge tells the weak fluid how to flow. The yoga of QCD, quantum chromodynamics, the theory of the strong force, is that the gluon fluid tells strong color how to charge how to flow, and color charge tells the gluon fluid how to flow. And the yoga of general relativity is that the metric fluid tells energy momentum how to flow, and energy momentum tells the metric fluid how to flow. You may notice a certain parallelism between these yogas. In this way, we discover a common dualistic pattern underlying all the known fundamental forces. And with that, we can come back to our question, does the world embody beautiful ideas? That's the idea that the world embodies. Is it beautiful? Well, some people thought so. People found such dualistic understanding beautiful long before anyone knew that it governs the fundamental laws of physics. In the Taiji, or yin-yang, symbol of China, of that uh, central to Chinese culture, very much has this concept. It's it's obviously dualistic, but the philosophy that goes with it is that yin is substance, the black one, and yang is force, and uh, they're actually two fish. I didn't know this until recently. And this Chinese artist who contributed this image to the book explained to me that it's a playful image with two fish, and these are eyes. You can sort of see the fins, and the fish... The play of these fish is what governs the world. (laughs) So, I've shown you what the world is. Suppressed a few details. (laughs) But they're in the book. Uh, Now we can address our question in a meaningful way by comparing with empirical data on what beauty is. There's a lot of empirical data on what people have found beautiful over the years. And in particular, 
seeking to embody divine beauty, their concept of the highest possible beauty, artistic creators anticipated the spirit of anamorphic and anachromic exuberance, the fact that you could have symmetry locally and change colors locally um, to build up interesting structures, long before anyone knew that it runs the world. For example... Look at that. <laughs> you see uh, simple, symmetric structures like squares, anamorphically deformed along the wall. Uh, you see different colors deployed in symmetric patterns also. Uh, and just a tremendous exuberance using simple elements and symmetry and transformations to uh, build interesting patterns based on transformations that are locally symmetric but, but act differently at different places. So, does the world embody beautiful ideas? By experiment, Yes. Both in the concepts, the concept of symmetry, that remember the Renaissance artists found extraordinarily satisfying and empowering. The concept of Taiji that comes out of Chinese tradition. Exuberance of form and exuberance of color, as we just saw in that image. And we could multiply that image by many by looking at different versions, different kinds of de- decorative art across many cultures. So now I'd like to very briefly uh, describe how we use beauty, how I use beauty, and some of, some of us use beauty, to try to guess new laws. Now, In beauty, we trust because it has a good track record. So in the 20th century, enabling us to guess new laws, that's how we got the laws of quantum chromodynamics and the weak force. It's much too complicated, much too remote in subatomic physics to try to do detailed step-by-step experiments to build up the laws empirically. As a practical matter, what we do is guess the laws and then verify Guess the laws based on aesthetic considerations. But this is supposed to be science, so uh, in beauty we trust, but it's trust but trust but verify. I guess particularly appropriate here at the London School of Economics is you also deal with uh, game theory and negotiations. <laughs> okay, we've seen that symmetry can, can unify apparently different things. Different sorts of colors, for instance, in, in the sense of spectral colors, but also different kinds of particles, which I didn't go into great detail, but that's what the theories of the weak and strong forces do. But there's a distinction in this duality between substance and force. Those appear to be quite two quite different things. So if we're looking for ways to make even more beautiful laws to make things more symmetric. Uh, When you see two things, 
the instinct is to try to see if they can be one thing seen from this viewpoint of different symmetry transformations, different transformations that leave the overall content of the physical laws the same, although things get shifted, the identity of things gets shifted around. So can we transcend that duality? Now, actually, one great discovery of quantum mechanics gets us part of the way there. For example, sort of the prototypical substance particle is an electron, out of which materials are built. The prototypical force particle is light that governs the electromagnetic fields and the forces that uh, are mediated by electric and magnetic fields. But we learn in quantum theory that electrons have wave-like properties, that they can go around corners and things. Uh, And if you want a proper description of electrons, you have to use their so-called wave functions, which are distributed as probability clouds throughout all space. And light has particle-like properties. The minimal units of light are things called photons, which are like particles. So the distinction between substance and light, when you talk about individual electrons versus individual photons, when you talk about single particles, there's basically no distinction. They both can be described in a common language that's neither accurately described just in terms of waves nor accurately described just in terms of particles, but in terms of a unified concept of wavicles, or wave functions in quantum mechanics, more distinguished version. But when you consider two particles, two electrons or two photons, there's a big distinction. This is technically called the distinction between fermions and bosons. Substance particles like electrons are, boson- are fermions. Fermions uh, have the property that they don't like to do the same thing. Or technically, it's the Pauli exclusion principle. If you try to put them in the same quantum mechanical state, they refuse to do it. Bosons are just the opposite. They love to do the same thing. If you have two photons and give them a chance, they'll start to make a laser where all of them line up, move in the same direction, and have the same color. So those are quite different. Nevertheless, we'd really like to do this. Have a symmetry transformation that changes the force particles into substance particles and substance particles into force particles while leaving the content of physical laws the same. To accomplish that trick, we have to introduce another kind of dimension, a so-called quantum dimension, and extend the science of perspective to those dimensions. So that gives us new vantage points. And from the vantage point of these quantum dimensions, if you move into a quantum dimension and you were a force particle, you turn into a substance particle. If you were a substance particle, you turn into a force particle. Some properties, although not mass, remain unchanged in these, these movements. So if it's true that you can move into this quantum dimension... Um, then each particle we know about will have a partner 
That's this, its version when it moves into the extra dimension, the extra quantum dimension, uh, just as different kinds of quarks moving around in their property space are really uh, one thing just seen from different perspectives. When you do this, uh, some properties of the particles say the same, uh, though not their mass. And if, if they exist, we'll be able to recognize them. So this, although it sounds kind of mystical and sounds like a very bold extrapolation, actually has testable consequences. We need, if these ideas are be, to be correct, we need to have the new particles that the particles we know about uh, become, when they move into the quantum dimension, actually exist as things in the physical world. That's what our trust in beauty has led us to. There's even circumstantial evidence for this. We can ask if the different forces become equal at short distances. If you were wondering about asymptotic freedom, this is the sort of thing that asymptotic freedom is about. It tells you how the forces change with distance. And if we use the known particles in our equations to predict it, we find that the unification I hinted at almost but not quite occurs. But if we include the extra particles that supersymmetry wants, they all come together. And not only do the electric weak and strong forces, but also gravity comes together as well. So that's why I love Susie, supersymmetry. Uh, it's not only a bold expansion of the symmetry of the world, but has observable consequences, and there's already some circumstantial evidence for it. It's got to be true, right? <laughs> well, we hunger, however, for nature's affirmation, and at the Large Hadron Collider, operating near CERN, at CERN, near Geneva, there's a, uh, the heart of it is a 26-kilometer around circle, a tunnel filled with uh, these superconducting magnets. These are magnets much like you'd be inserted into if you got an MRI made. But uh, to save energy, they have to be superconducting, which means this whole thing has to be at 2 degrees Kelvin. It's the coldest place in the whole universe, colder than intergalactic space, which is filled with a 2.7 degree microwave background. It takes a lot of plumbing to keep all that cold. It's a very exhausting job. <laughs> but it'll be worth it if we can find the expected, by me, <laughs> predicted uh, equations, the consequences of this extrapolation of symmetry and beauty and new dimensions into superspace. So, I've flashed a lot of ideas by you. Uh, I hope I've tantalized you and, if you trusted me, convinced you <laughs> that... Uh, the world does embody beautiful ideas, but if you want the full documentation and the discussion in much greater depth with other stuff also, uh, 
I highly recommend this book. <laughs> the cover alone is worth the price. <laughs> and I can, I can boast about it without being immodest because I didn't have anything to do with its design. Uh, but uh, look at this. And you open the peephole, and it's just like revealing the inner world of extraordinary beauty that uh, we reveal conceptually if we study deeply the nature of physical reality. So thank you for your attention. <laughs> so thank you very much. Uh, Professor Wilczek will be happy to answer questions you may have. If you do, uh, please raise your hand, and there is somebody will, who bring, bring, will bring you a microphone, and please ask your question. Keep it a question, not a lecture, please. <laughs> so, the gentleman uh, at the back there. Thanks for the lovely talk. Thank you. Uh, I wonder if you could comment a little bit more on the circumstances under which uh, beauty leads us in the right direction, and then perhaps there are some historic circumstances in which beauty has led us in the wrong direction. Yes. And maybe in particular, you could comment on. Uh, I understand that there was a uh, that there was a one thousand dollar bet that was made around six years ago between you and Garrett Lisi on the on, on whether or not super well, supersymmetric particles so. would be remember. discovered okay. well. by today. <laughs> Tonight is the night. So I wonder if if, uh, if if you could comment on that as well. Thanks. <laughs> well, I don't remember that bet, but okay. <laughs> I'll take him at his word. Uh, the, L, the, uh, the LHC had some travails in its early operation, so it hasn't come to its full power as fast as expected. So I'm hoping that when it does, in the next few years, I'll be proved morally correct, even if the date was a little, uh, a little optimistic. <laughs> okay. Thank you. I mean, there's another person here at the front. Hi, um, thanks very much again. Uh, that was a, a really interesting lecture. Um, if I, uh, I, I was thinking, um, sometimes I look at things like art or just arrangements of things that are in the world, wherever they are, and I think, oh, that looks beautiful, but it's not symmetric. Right. So, no. am I just failing to appreciate some sort of higher <laughs> symmetry, no. or, um, I, or are some things... I don't claim for a moment that uh, all forms of beauty are represented in the basic laws of nature, nor that all the laws of nature are uh, beautiful, although the most basic laws do seem to be. Uh, but... So there, there are many other sources of beauty in the world. There's you know, the attraction we naturally have to other attractive people <laughs> or landscapes or animals or moral beauty. Uh, those are not, as far as I can tell, represented in the basic laws. But the miracle is that there are some forms of beauty that people have appreciated for a long time and play a profound role in art. Uh, that, the, that the world does embody right? in very sophisticated, interesting forms. Yeah. Uh, oh, by the way, I didn't, I didn't answer your legitimate question, which is, <laughs> <laughs> which is yes, there are, uh, there are examples of, uh, 
You're certainly right about that. There are examples of beautiful ideas that didn't work. Let me just show one because it's especially pretty. Well, actually, maybe I don't. I'll just describe it. Um, well, desc- yeah, I'll describe the, the earliest one, which was easy. Uh, Plato, way back when, already intuited that symmetry might be a guide to, to possible structures in the world. He did a, something very modern in spirit. He proposed that the most symmetric solids, the things that are now called platonic solids in his honor, uh, the only five shapes that are highly, most are optimally symmetric in a precise sense in three dimensions, that those would be the possible shapes of atoms and that you would build up atoms. So one of them is a tetrahedron, for instance. That's very pointy. That was supposed to be the atom of fire that stings. The icosahedron, which is much smoother, was meant to be the atom of water. There were four elements thought to be at that time. So four is close to five. Uh, With the fifth, he made the shape of the whole universe, the dodecahedron. It's a beautiful theory and certainly has a kind of profound... And and at, at some level, there's a grain of truth to it, although it's completely false. (laughs) that's not the way atoms work there aren't just four elements Uh, the universe isn't shaped like a dodecahedron etc etc but it was was a beautiful idea that that the world could be ruled fundamentally according to perfect concepts perfect concepts of symmetrical atoms so that's, that's an example of a beautiful theory that was completely false, yet fruitful. There are other examples of theories that have been false and not terribly fruitful, but, uh, but yeah, they don't, it doesn't always work. So that's why we trust but verify. Right. Okay, yeah. I should say also that uh, people who author theories usually find their own theories beautiful. <laughs> So, so how specific is the supersymmetry uh, predictions? I mean, is there a lot of wiggle room left so that when you have yes. the results from the Hadron Collider, will you know how, exactly what you're looking for, or will, could there be many different uh, parameters or different uh, values that you could well, still say, is, I was yeah, right? A lot is known, but a lot is firm, but a lot is unfirm also. Uh, so uh, what is firm is that when a, particle, a superpartner of a, of a particle has the same electric charge, the same color charges for both the strong and the weak interactions, it has another property called spin, which is related in a very precise and predictable way. So a lot of the features of these particles are predictable, enough so that I think we'll recognize them if they do exist. Uh, but what the theory as presently understood does not predict is the mass of those guys. The best handle we have on the mass is, in fact, the calculation I showed you. (coughs) 
here when it's spelled out quantitatively. If the, the, the strength of the supersymmetric corrections depends on the mass of the particles, not, not terribly strongly, but, but it does technically logarithmically, but it does depend on that mass. If the mass gets tremendously big, then that picture whoops, it's going the wrong way. That picture goes over into. Going down memory lane, sorry. <laughs> Almost there. That successful calculation, if the supersymmetric particles are extremely heavy, they don't make large corrections to the forces at, as, uh, as you change distance. And the successful calculation goes back over into the unsuccessful calculation that you would have without supersymmetric particles. Now, exactly where the borderline is between too heavy and not too heavy is a little fuzzy. Uh, the way I read it, they, uh, they probably, some of the supersymmetric particles had better show up at the LHC. But there is a little bit of wiggle room, and uh, uh, I think people will still be interested in this coincidence, if the L- even if the LHC does not find the supersymmetric particles. But that would be a kind of anticlimactic situation, and it w- I think it would be, as a practical matter, a challenge to persuade people to pony, enough, pony up money for... Yet a bigger accelerator to to uh, to close the last loophole, but uh, let's hope for the best. <laughs> Maybe the person here. Yes, please. Um, hello. Uh, thank you very much for the talk. And uh, I I I'm a basically a physics student, so I, I really appreciate like the last graph about gauge constant coupling strength, and I, I believe this is a very beautiful kind of way of thinking about supersymmetry, but I just want to, as a follow-up question, like there's no obvious upper bound to what kind of energy scale uh, which we can find as superpartners, but uh, if... This is the only, this is the... Right. This is the best handle we have on the masses. Right. Other people will mumble about naturality and so forth, but this is quantitative. Yeah. And as I said, the calculation degrades gradually, mm-hmm. and it's not clear that it's unacceptable for masses slightly larger than the, the LHC. Mm-hmm. So it, it certainly gets unacceptable if the particles are much heavier than, than the LHC could access. So right. that's a reason to be at least cautiously optimistic. Yeah. And uh, I, I, I hate to be a devil's advocate, but uh, like, what if like, after the revamp of LHC, you still don't have, find any kind of super partners? So when would be the point where Susie believers... Well, the bet I re- remember, <laughs> <laughs> and I have documented, uh, uh, 
was at a, whose deadline is December 31st, uh, 2020. So that's when the LHC will have run at its designed energy long enough to really be, to have exhausted its possibilities, really, for discovering anything, assuming no more disasters. Uh, I'm sorry, what was your exact question? I forgot. Oh, sorry. Uh, well, <laughs> oh, what happens if, if, if uh, yeah, yeah, well, I don't know, maybe, you know, if, if this is not the idea that describes nature, I, I, uh, I have... Well, I, you know, it would be really horrible if nature wasn't described by some beautiful idea. At present, there's no comparably beautiful idea that I see that could do the things for us that supersymmetry does. Thank you. So maybe, if, you know, but maybe there are such ideas. I certainly haven't seen them, and people have been looking for a long time and haven't found any. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. Um, Maybe you, you at the back there, yes. Hi, Dr. Welchek. So you mentioned that people sometimes, it, beauty is subjective, and you mentioned divine beauty in your talk, and you mentioned sometimes you might find another person attractive. So the emotion that's elicited by finding someone attractive might be, you know, lust. And then, <laughs> yes. and then there's divine so you, compared to most people on this planet, have probably gotten closest, closer to, um, to the physical reality. So when you discover something very beautiful, what is the emotion that you feel? What is this divine Lust. beauty? Yes. Uh, well, it, you know, they're all, I guess, at some level, they're all dopamine rushes. So it's, there's a lot in common to this feeling of triumph. I, this morning, I did a radio show uh, about music and, and beauty and also talking about these kinds of issues. And uh, among the rest, we, t- we played the wedding march. And, you know, if you, of Mendelssohn. Know, uh, which I hope everyone is familiar with. It starts with a trumpet fanfare and then this kind of triumph. And one thing I love about it is that it brings out so many aspects of beauty and brings them all together, even including lust <laughs> in, uh, in the confines of marriage. Uh, they, <laughs> they, uh, and they all, in my experience, they... Uh, well, of course, they differ in detail, but there's something very common in the experience of triumph when you have your hopes fulfilled. My question is about color, and why is anything a particular color? Let's take, for example, aluminium. It's white because it reflects most all the wavelengths. But mm-hmm. copper is more red because it reflects more red light. What's the difference between atomic structure of aluminium and copper that makes copper reflect well, more red light? Well, that's a very long story. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, I'll just say that quantum mechanics tells you, allows you to calculate things like that. So, but it's quite a long story. Uh, okay, one thing I can say something a little bit more informative. Mm-hmm. The equations that describe atoms 
and molecules turn out to be profoundly similar to the equations that describe musical instruments. They're both distributions of vibration patterns in space of substances that have definite force laws, if you like. One is governed by the Schrodinger equation. The other is governed by the equation of uh, vibrating air or vibrating uh, sounding boards and so forth. But, but the equations mathematically are very, very strongly resembling each other. They're partial differential equations with a certain structure. Uh, in the case of musical instruments when you have different musical instruments with different sizes and shapes and designs, they emit a tonal palette, which is determined by the size and the shape and the design. So you have a piccolo, or you have a clarinet, and so, or a violin, and so forth. Uh, and they emit different tones. They're natural vibration patterns. It's a similar thing for atoms. Their atoms have natural vibration patterns that correspond, in that case not to emission of sound, but emission of light, it turns out. When atoms vibrate, they emit light. And different atoms emit light preferentially of different spectral colors. That's called their spectrum. Or, and that's like the tonal palette of different musical instruments. Now, so your question was, why do different... I mean, substances uh, color, really. <laughs> uh, look, ha- uh, look have different colors, and the answer is for the same reason that different musical instruments have different sounds. It's just the way they're built. Okay, thank you. Okay. So maybe one or two more questions. Here is one. Anybody else who wants to? So then, sorry. So yeah, okay. Here, please, and then. Hello. Yeah, there's another question. We will ask one upstairs. Um, I'm also a physicist. I always wonder when you go from the micro uh, world to the macro world, and if you consider the antimatter and matter situation, I sometimes wonder if we actually need a slight asymmetrical factor oh. if, if you look at the absolute numbers, otherwise the whole system wouldn't be stable. Yes. That, is, that is one question, what do you think about it? And the second question, no, is very, very one, similar, right? oh. is, is do you think that the, uh, that the theoretical and mathematical number zero exists in nature, or is it a very tiny number like 10 to the minus 40? That is uh, also a, a similar question. Just okay, that second one, I don't know <laughs> how to answer it. I have to think about that. That's such a strange question. I like it. Uh, but, <laughs> but the first question is uh, breaking of symmetry is a very important topic that deserves at least a lecture of its own. Uh, for instance, when we talk about supersymmetry, when I talk about supersymmetry, I said that the, the mass of particles can change when they go into the quantum dimension. That wouldn't be true if supersymmetry were an exact symmetry of nature. So you say, well, if it's not an exact symmetry, what, what is it? Uh, it's an approximate symmetry. That's sort of almost meaningless, because that just means it's not a symmetry. <laughs> uh, But there's an intermediate notion that turns out to be extremely fruitful, and that's the one I've been implicitly using here, which is called spontaneous symmetry breaking. 
It's the idea that the equations are very symmetric, but when you solve them, all their stable solutions are less symmetric. So a nice example, a sort of non-technical example I like to give is traffic. Uh, It would be just as good for everyone to drive on the right-hand lane or for everyone to drive on the left-hand lane. But but you've got to choose one. Otherwise, it's chaos and unstable. And you can choose either one. In fact, on different sides of the Atlantic, different choices have been made. But the symmetry between right and left is necessarily broken in the stable traffic patterns, the stable ways of arranging traffic. So so you can have the situations that you have underlying laws that are symmetric, but all their stable, sensible solutions have less symmetry. And that turns out to be a profoundly important idea in the fundamental interactions. In particular, for instance, in the theory of the weak interactions, you start with very symmetric equations, but you find that they spontaneously want to fill the world with something called the Higgs field. You can gain energy by producing this field. So that's what happens. And in the presence of the Higgs field, uh, the equations have less symmetry. They have less symmetry, but they also have the virtue of describing reality accurately. So that's that's the so there's that intermediate possibility. I didn't have time to describe, but it's an essential supplement in fundamental law to the idea of symmetry. There's a question upstairs, and then we should start to wrap up unless there's something. Hi, professor. Sorry, enjoyed the talk. Um, I'm not a physicist, but I'm a grad student here, and we often hear about, or at least in popular science, we hear about. Supersymmetry over here. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. In the uh, in the context of um, often in the context of string theory and and like string theory becoming more of a legitimate field, more and more of a leg- or seemingly so uh, from the outside, by popularizers like Brian Greene and others, is if you could describe it to us, social scientists, is supersymmetry the thing that would make something like string theory beautiful, something that seems like, at least from the outside, quite complex and not as elegant as relativity, for example. Is that what would make it beautiful? Or? Well, supersymmetry is a very important ingredient in making string theory uh, consistent in certain ways. So if... One finds supersymmetry, that would encourage further pursuit of the ideas of string theory. But it wouldn't prove it by any means because supersymmetry can stand on its own, as I've described here. So it would be encouragement for further exploration in the ideas of of string theory, but wouldn't ice the cake, ice the case, actually. So the okay, last question here. Don't yeah. Thank you very much. I really like your cover uh, <laughs> of the book. The, the inside is pretty good too. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in fact, that's exactly my question. <laughs> um, because um, what your book is about the outer world, meaning what is the universe, basically. And so you have this loophole 
um, and saying what is also what's the inner world? That's my question. So do you think um, this, the first question is what is the universe? The second is then what is consciousness? Do, do, so do, do you okay. think that... Well, you won't find answers to all questions. In this. Yes. <laughs> However, I very much do realize that there are two parts to this question. There's the world and there's our perception of beauty. And I showed you here sort of empirical evidence for what people find beautiful. And that's not stuff about the outer world, so to speak, but, but about artistic creation. Uh, in the book, there's also a lot more discussion of the nature of perception along the line. Uh, uh, so there's much more discussion than I had uh, a chance to do justice to here. But, but yes, there, there certainly are two sides to the question, and to do it justice, you need to take account of both. Okay, some song. Okay, one more. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I was very pleased to hear the ancient Greeks mentioned in your talk quite recently because yes. I think a lot of the ideas of beauty and science oh, yes. come from the ancient Greeks. Yes. Um, I do research on an ancient Greek device called the Antikythera mechanism. Oh, yes. Right. And uh, a predecessor of mine, Derek DeSola Price, found a, a very beautiful theory for explaining how it worked. He said that it contained a differential gear. It was an extraordinary and beautiful idea uh, but it just happened to be completely wrong, and it set back Antikythera research for about 30 years, I would say. Um, oh, you mean the beauti- the, that, that beautiful idea he had was wrong? And that, that it he, was a differential gear. He was very seduced oh. by this beautiful idea uh-huh. and f- failed to question a lot of other things because he was yes. seduced by it. Yes. The, the actual way it works is even more beautiful than, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> than that. So I guess the lessons were, were that if you find a beautiful theory, firstly, you better be sure it's right. Yes. And secondly, you, may be, you should be looking for an even more beautiful theory yeah, to well, really explain it. <laughs> absolutely. And that's, that's, what it, that's what we do. <laughs> We've... Uh, as I mentioned, there are very sympathetic ideas already in Plato, but they're not right. You can do better. Kepler was also inspired by similar ideas about the solar system and led to, uh, by trying to gather evidence for that theory, led to more precise description, which showed that the theory was entirely wrong, but led to Newton's more precise theory, and so on. So we're always hope, you know, trying things, and it's trust but verify. And uh, nature can spring surprises. Uh, so far in the history of fundamental physics, and especially as it, uh, in a sense, well, reached at least a temporary climax in the 20th century with these core theories of the f- fundamental forces uh, is a real triumph of symmetry. We trusted it, tried to verify it, and did verify it. <laughs> uh, but now with supersymmetry, we're at the trust but ver- not verified stage. And, if, and you're quite right. Some, some ideas work, other ones I don't. 
You know, most, most ideas that don't work don't get out of people's notebooks or uh, don't survive very long. Some do, though, and, uh, well, you gotta, what can you do? You've got to try. Right? Yeah. Okay, so thanks you all for coming, all right. and thank you very much, Professor Richard, for... Uh,